aren't here today. So I am fresh and rejuvenated, and I'm ready to preach for two and a half hours. So, uh, oh, I'm so excited. I haven't had this much energy to, on a Sunday morning in a while. Last night, Michelle and I went and saw The Sound of Freedom, which if you haven't seen it, I want to commend it to you. You need to go see it. You need to go see it. You're not going to want to see it. You're going to go sit in it and you're going to want to leave. Michelle and I wanted to leave. You need to go see it. It's a story that brings to light the reality of human trafficking in our world today. And I'll tell you why you need to go see it. While the movie follows Tim Ballard and much of the work that he did in Colombia and Honduras and Mexico, The human sex trafficking ring has the most success in the United States of America than any other place in this world. Maybe that's not close enough to home for you. We've partnered with a, a ministry called We Are Free, led by Angeline McMurray, who has revealed to me that in the United States, there's one particular highway that has more human sex trafficking on it than any other place in the United States. I'd like to say it was California, because that place has fallen apart and we can watch it from afar. It's I-40 between Fort Smith and Oklahoma City. It's our backyard. I feel like I'm over my head. Watch the movie. I was looking at some of the comments while I was up late last night because I don't have kids. I was reading through some of the comments and people were asking, all right, the movie wasn't enough. It brought awareness to it. Now what do we do? Where do we start? One statistic said that there is more slavery in our world today than any other time in history, including when slavery was legal. If that doesn't make you feel over your head, I don't know what will. And that's just one problem. There's other problems. Is everyone completely satisfied with the state of human affairs in terms of governments in this world? I know everyone's completely satisfied with that. I feel over my head. How can I reclaim? How do we as a, as a people who are able to participate in directing the affairs of this world? I mean, we have a vote, don't we? How do we as a people shape these kinds of things and, and reclaim it and, and give power back to the people? I feel over my head because I'm just one vote. The size of the system is overwhelming. It's confusing and convoluted when we try to research or find out these problems and look into them. We don't even understand how the system works because it's become so intricate, so fine. You have to go to law school to understand what's happening. The scale of corruption around us is so large that we don't even see it. The reality is we talk about bribes being passed in other parts of the world, but there are probably bribes passed in our backyard that allow I-40 to become the sex trafficking highway in the world. I say all of that just to point out that 
even though the size is intimidating, even though the scale it causes fear, it only makes the seriousness of our response all that more important. Rachel's song that she shared with us gives us hope. It gives us hope because as we look at the problem of size and scale and we consider the seriousness of our response, it reminds us of the certainty of God's will. And I know certainty doesn't begin with an S, but that's still considered an alliteration because it makes the same sound. Size, scale, seriousness, and certainty. We still have the certainty of God's will. If you'd entertain me for a second... I'd like to read a little excerpt from a book that I've been reading. I haven't finished it. The book's called Healing for Christians Who Have Been Crucified by Christians by Gene Edwards. Because what seems so overwhelming when we talk about these large-scale problems, the reason we're ineffective in responding to them, the reason we are ineffective in being a light in the world is because There's also corruption. There's also complicated systems in our homes, in our communities, and in our churches, even our church. Gene Edwards writes, If you accept that nightmarish ordeal as a sovereign work of God, if you acquiesce to His will, then does he begin to have his will? Suddenly it becomes not only a crucifixion, but a holy work of God. Things needing destruction begin to be destroyed. Things he desires to live on live in victory. Persist in looking upon that event as the unjustifiable conduct of wicked men and nothing is gained. Its only outcome is a shriveled soul your future then becomes no more than that which awaits any embittered creature. Among my generation, we look at corruption, we look at frustrations, and I think this is more true for even the generation a bit younger than I am. I was raised by my grandma, so I just don't fit in well with my age group. It's so easy to become embittered by a broken system that we play no active role in trying to reshape it. The greatest generation is the greatest generation not because they had all the circumstances that they needed to be the greatest generation, but because they took responsibility for the people around them, for their communities, for their churches, for the people that they were raising. And I'm sorry if you're not a member of the greatest generation, but you are of the generation that raised my generation. Listen to me. A lot of the problems that we face in terms of disinterest is your fault. The generation of helicopter parents crippled a generation. It taught them not to take responsibility It taught them to point at all the obstacles and the problems and to give up. Could you imagine Esther, Queen Esther, 
looking at the edict that went out in the land that the Jews would be succumbed to genocide and just giving up. Could you imagine Mordecai just sitting in sackcloth and just giving up? Yeah, there's problems in our world. There's problems in our homes. There's problems in marriages. There's problems in raising children. There's problems in our church. There's problems in our association. There's problems in the way that the church conducts themselves. There's problems in the way that missions have been organized and corporatized. Are you going to be a part of the solution? Or are you going to continue to be a part of a problem by turning a blind eye to it? This is really the question that we must ask when we consider what does it mean for Christians to live in an unchristian world? It's a good enough introduction. Let's get to the Bible. Esther chapter 6. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these people. Lord, thank you for giving us rest. Help us, Lord, as we bow in your presence, as we come to you in prayer to remember what we are praying for, Lord, that your word would touch our hearts, that it would shape our lives, that it would transform the way that we interact with one another. Give us insight and wisdom, Lord, as we conduct this study. Give us humility as we accept that we are not the solution, but you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We'll read through verse number 13. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court now? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn and the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head the royal crown is set. And let the robes and let the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, This shall it be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry! Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse 
And he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. We begin to get to the turn of events and the narrative of Esther. I was struck by something this week as I prepared for this morning. That is, that when we read a narrative, so often we allow ourselves to back away in some way to to kind of create a caricature of the people that are being written about. And this is true in the book of Esther. It's a true story. It's a real story. It's found in the Bible. King Ahasuerus is a real king that lived in the, during the time of the Persian Empire. He's the grandson of King Cyprus who allowed Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem. And by the way, the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonian Empire. Um, these are real events in history. They line up with this narrative. And, and as we've kind of made progress through the book, I've poked fun at King Ahasuerus as being a vacillator, as being a bad leader, being as one given over to wine, being as one that that does things without really thinking about it. And honestly, I I think the record of history testifies to that. He was unsuccessful in the the battle in Italy when he tried to overcome the Greeks, which ultimately, if you want to line this up with history better, that's when Alexander the Great came into power and eventually conquered the Persian Empire. Anyways, we'll set that aside for a second because I don't want to bore you with that. I'm a nerd, you're not, and that's okay. I can't look at King Ahasuerus just as a caricature. He's a real person who laid awake one night and could not sleep. He's a real person that struggled with insomnia. The first point that I want to look at this morning mainly between verses 1 through 5, is that God moves in us. We've talked about this before. God is the one that gives us the convictions and the burdens of our heart. He's the one that allows us to go see movies that open our eyes to the atrocities of this world. God is the one that puts burdens on our heart. And just watch this for a second. As we begin in our text, it was on this night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds. Now, what I do is I turn Netflix on and I watch a show that I can fall asleep to. They didn't have Netflix in the Persian Empire, nor Snapchat, or what what was the other one that you mentioned? I thought you were speaking in tongues for a moment when you were listing these things off. I don't keep up with all the social medias and all that. He had the books of memorable deeds brought before him so that they could be read. We can really see God working here, can't we? Who kept King Hazarus up? God did. Was it because he took a nap and he wasn't used to taking a nap in the middle of the day and so he was sleepless at night? 
perhaps. Maybe there's some natural explanation. But ultimately, it was God that made him so alert, so awake, so unable to find rest that he had this book brought before him that recorded, this book recorded an act that Mordecai had done some six years before this, when Mordecai had told them that there were two guards at the gate who planned to kill the king. All of this is God at work. Jump back to Esther chapter 2, verse 23. You'll find this event when Mordecai saved the king because he was in the right place at the right time, but he wasn't recognized for it. All that is said is that it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Six years later, the king can't sleep at night. And he hears about Mordecai saving his life. An insignificant moment, just being in the right place at the right time and hearing something is put into a book in history and we're able to look back and see God at work. God at work through all of this, that the king hears it and he says, what was done to honor this man that saved my life? And the king's men tell him nothing. Nothing was done. Nothing was done. He's still sitting at the gate. No honor was bestowed him. Nothing happened. And the king now has a new burden in his heart. I need to honor this man. Better late than never, right? But he's interrupted. He's interrupted by another real man. The book of Esther in many ways reads like what I would consider or classify in terms of a literary element as melodrama, where you see all of these different characters or people or traits in people amplified to such an extreme that it's almost unbelievable. You know what I mean by melodrama, right? Where the bad guy has a curly mustache and he always wears a black bowler hat and he walks on stage and kind of like with a little hunch. It's a character of the villain. The good guy is, is so good that he does nothing wrong. There's almost no humanity in him. It's almost unbelievable. I'm glad Esther's a real story where we can see faults and failings and failures. And we can see God working through all of that. See, Mordecai, it's almost unbelievable how wicked he is. It's almost unfathomable for me to believe that somebody could have such a desire for wickedness that they would want to kill an entire race of people. Had it not been for world history, I wouldn't believe this book. But this is relevant, at least within the last century, isn't it? That somebody would want to kill an entire race of people. And I'm not just talking about the Holocaust. I'm talking about the hate implanted in, in, in racism in our world. That so much wickedness could exist inside of humanity. But Esther reminds us that even Haman's a real guy. So provoked by his pride that because of, Haman, because of Mordecai, he wanted to kill all of his people, eradicate all trace of them from this world. 
He had a plan too. He had a conviction in his heart, didn't he? Hey, Mordecai had pushed him too far, still not bowing, even after he had been honored and and he bragged to his friends about all of the honors that were bestowed to him. Everything that had accomplished that he was invited as the only guest to sit with the king and the queen to not one, but two dinners, not two, but three. And what we'll find, there's even a fourth. Still not enough. His pride's still not satisfied. He's still the God of his own life. And, and so he decides he wants to have Mordecai hung. He has gallows built. He goes to the king prepared. It tells us what his intention was. The, nevertheless, Haman restrained him. Oh, this is chapter five, sorry. Chapter 6, verse 4. Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. We know what his intention was in being in this place. We see this burden of his heart. Hey, I got to give props. Some of you have good intentions and don't do anything with it. Haman, this is the problem in our world. A wicked man who had bad intentions acted on it. God moves in us. The point that I'm trying to make as we look through this narrative is that God moves in us in making the king Come awake. It was by God's providence that the king could not sleep. It was by God's providence that the chronicles were read in the particular part from six years ago. I imagine there was a lot more in that book, but that's the particular part that was read to him that night. And that he remembered what took place in Esther chapter 2, verse number 23. Because it was by God's providence that the burden to honor him was laid on his heart. I want to ask a question as we talk about how God moves in us. Moving away from the text just a little bit, why are the burdens of our heart not the same? You know, I asked this question. I said a little bit ago, I'm a nerd, you're not, that's okay. I'm different than you are. God's given me a particular burden. I can speak to my burden. He's burdened me for His church. I know that some of you are burdened for His church, but maybe to a lesser or even just different degree. And that's fine. That's okay. Because I still believe even if you don't feel called to ministry, even if you don't feel called to give up your life for this particular task, that God has burdened you with something. Whether that's serving in His church faithfully. Whether that is serving our country. Being a part of reclaiming the freedom that we have by God's natural laws, by influencing legislatures to protect the innocent. Maybe God's given you a burden to shape the culture of our workforce in such a way that people are honored and given distinction instead of being ground into the the pummel of life. can't speak to your burdens. Only you know what God is doing in your heart. Only I know what God is doing in my heart. But I can affirm them. I I can say that I see God working in your life and that this is godly. I, I can help you to walk in them. And I just like you can encourage me by telling me that God has called me to what he is, what I am doing and that he's working through me. Even when I see discouragement, God gives us different burdens. He gave Haman different burdens. And here's the catch. 
Not only does God move in us in giving the burdens of our heart, but He also affirms them. He affirms them. We cannot use our differences or our distinctions as a license in order to say that's just the way that I am. Haman had burdens, but look at how God responds even to the wicked. Because it's possible even that my well-intentioned heart to serve God comes from a place of pride. Consider that for a moment. Whether it's in this church or a different church that you go to because you don't like the way that I preach, that's fine. Or I offend you, that's fine too. Consider for a moment that the man that preaches the word of God may have bad intentions. He may be seeking simply to stand up in front of everyone so that he can honor himself. That would totally, that would be, that, that would contradict God. And in those situations, we have to trust that God is the one that gives people their positions, that God is the one that directs them. Haman had bad intentions, so consider this. You might have good intentions, and it might not be come, coming from God. How do we know that the burdens of our heart are truly from God? John wrote in 1 John 4.1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Simply, we test the spirits. There's a way that God affirms His will. He affirms His providence with His provision. He affirms His providence with His provision. Providence of giving you a burden in your heart is affirmed in giving you the abilities to do just that. It would seem that Haman had everything that he needed. He was in a position of high influence in the kingdom. He had the king's ear. He could go to the king and even have confidence. Look at the arrogance here. Just contrast it for a second with Esther before she went to the king. As she said, if I perish, I perish. Humbly going to stand in the king's court knowing that there was a chance that she would be killed simply for doing so. But Haman comes into the king's presence and is ready to ask him to have Mordecai hung. It seems that he has all the provision that he needs, but look at the provision of God as we move on. God affirms the burden of Esther and Mordecai through this book. Even though it seems like they were the underdog, God directs them. God allows them to be saved. Haman's intentions were wicked, and he's cut off. Ironically, by his own hubris, when he says, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Saying to himself in verse 6, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? We know how the story unfolds. We can skip to the good part. We know what comes at the end, and, and we already see it being turned around as Mordecai is the one that the king has in his mind, even though Haman could not see it. Provision stops Haman, affirming that the burden of his heart did not come from God, but it came from the wickedness that exists inside of all of us. Haman's not just a bad man, he's a human. Born to a fallen condition. 
If you accept that, then you also must accept that the same wickedness that led this man to do the horrible things that he did is the same wickedness that exists in the flesh today. God moves in us. He wakes the king. He provisionally provides for them. But second, he also is our reward. I ask, what are we chasing after? I mentioned that even somebody with good intentions who looks good, does good, maybe even, may even be a better pastor than I'll ever be, may have wrong intentions, may be motivated by something that doesn't glorify God, but that is seeking to glorify ourselves. You remember when Jesus was teaching, I think it's Luke chapter, I want to say Luke chapter 11. Somebody checked me on that. It's the parable of the wedding feast when he says, seek the lowly place. What does it mean to be humble and to seek the lowly place as our Lord instructed us to do? Haman sought to build himself up. He sought immediate satisfaction, immediate gratification. He wanted to be recognized for all that he'd done. It wasn't enough that he had been promoted to a position of power, that he had received honor and being the special guest of Queen Esther, who the only other person invited to this party was the queen herself. It wasn't enough for him, but he wanted to be honored even more. He wanted... If you look at this, he wanted to be the king. He wanted to wear the king's robes and ride the king's horse. And he wanted everyone to know it. This phrase is repeated over and over again in this chapter. What shall be done to the one whom the king delights to honor? We see it verse first in verse. We see it first in verse six. Second, as Haman responds to the king in verse 7. Third, as the plan is being concocted and this is the declaration that is planned in verse 9. And then when the plan is executed in verse 11, what shall be done for the one whom the king delights to honor? I ask you this morning, I said last week that we serve one king, the one true king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Take this phrase and apply it to your life. Ask yourselves, what should be done for the one whom our king delights to honor? Because this is ultimately our reward. As this is repeated, certainly in a particular context, certainly for a particular people existing somewhere in the 5th century, I ask today, in the 21st century, what should be done for the one whom the king delights to honor? Because there is a reward. If our intentions are set right, there is reward that exists for Christians. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. There is a reward that awaits those who respond to the burdens of their heart in such a way that they are acting on it through God's provision, that are trusting in God's provision. And that reward is great. It is in heaven. Jesus declared in a vision given to the Apostle John, recorded in Revelation chapter 22, verse number 12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render every man according to what he has done. 
There is a reward that awaits those that respond to God's will. Paul wrote to the church in Philippi in Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There is work to be done. Our salvation is not the end of our story. It's not the end of our story. Someone said once, and I don't know who to attribute this quote from, Fortunately, I don't think any of you care if I attribute it correctly. Sometimes Christians can be so consumed with the glories of heaven that they become useless on earth. I've been saying that for a long time. It's my original quote. It's how plagiarism happens one step at a time. Sometimes Christians become so consumed with the glories of heaven that they are useless on earth. Beloved, part of what Michelle and I were able to do yesterday, because we didn't have kids, was we were able to do ministry for the first time in three years together side by side. On our day off, we went up to the hospital and visited a dear brother who's been struggling for a year, a little over a year now. As I've visited with Brother Jim privately, he's, he's been saying this for a long time too. He's gotten better at not saying it in the presence of Miss Sherry because she becomes a little bit hysterical. I'm just ready to go home. I don't blame Brother Jim. I don't blame him. I'm ready to go home too. Are you ready to go home? Guys, I think it'd be great if Jesus came back in this moment in the middle of my preaching. I even think it'd be great if some of you pre-trib folks, even though I don't really agree with you, if you were right and we were called up into the skies in that moment. Oh, I would rejoice and I would sing. Let me tell you the implication. If you don't necessarily believe in in a tribulation, then you believe that even when you're left here, you exist for a purpose. And I find great encouragement. And perhaps even it's not necessarily theological or academic that I don't believe in the tribulation. But consider this just for a moment. And I'm not trying to convince you to believe what I believe. Just consider the application. I believe that no matter how bad things get, God has me here For a reason. And so even laying in bed with water, making it difficult to breathe on our lungs, I believe that until the moment that God calls us home, we are here for a reason. When Esther said, perhaps I am here for such a time as this, that's what she's saying. I believe until the moment that God calls me home, that we are here for a purpose that only He has decided. You have a choice. You can respond, or you can just wait. You can give up. You can watch a dying church. You can watch a community of believers that was once vibrant and visible in the community that testified to their neighbors that lived their life together die in spiritual apathy, no longer being concerned with sin, acquiescing, trying to be like the megachurches that do not preach the truth, but rather teach a surface-level gospel that makes people feel good, but ultimately lets them stay condemned to hell. Verse 
If we do not dive deep into the word of God, that is what we are doing. We are acquiescing to a world that does not want to hear the truth. That all of us have the wickedness of Haman in our flesh. And the only way we are redeemed is if God is working in us. If God is transforming our lives and He is overcoming sinfulness and He is making us His children. You could even look good, do good, and still go to hell. Even, I think worse yet, Go to heaven and have no reward. There's a reward that awaits us for the work, for the response that we have. This isn't the response to the gospel. This is the response to living a life for Christ. We can seek our reward in the success of our life. But loved ones, if you read the Bible, we're reading a story from the 5th century and we're being encouraged by it. Think about how amazing that is. This book takes place in the 5th century. That's more than 2,000 years ago. This is in the B.C. era. They barely even teach on this in public schools. I think my world history class, we started in Mesopotamia and then we jumped around to Japan. I don't know anything about the 5th century had it not been for interest in the Word of God and trying to understand what the book of Esther means. This book is encouraging us. It's, it's telling us to go onward. It's preparing us. It's equipping us. It's empowering us. What's that mean? Oh, that's why I can't see. I took these off. Um, what's that mean? Tell you what it means. The mission that God has given us in this world, I believe the book of Esther has the potential to save sinners. I believe that in preaching God's word, even the book of Esther, even though God's not mentioned, I believe this book has the potential to cause a sinner to respond to the gospel of Christ for the first time and begin the Christian pilgrimage that allows them to be equipped. That means that the life of Esther may have just been written for such a time as this. The mission that we have been given is larger than our life. We may labor an entire lifetime, 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, however many years God gives us, some of us 50 years. We may labor an entire lifetime and never see the reward on earth. We may never have someone come and pat us on the back and say, good job. We may work tirelessly and with all the effort that we have and never see a sinner come to know Christ. We may preach in our churches. We may work in our associations to redeem them and call them back to living in such a way that God and God alone is the one glorified. That power would no longer corrupt our systems. That people wouldn't strive for the advantages of being recognized by their fellow man and never see the effect. And who knows if some 2,000 years later somebody won't read a biography of our story. Who knows If some 2,000 years later, somebody might be looking through old church minutes and record a church that bowed in prayer like they had never done before, who conducted a revival service that saved neighbors. Who knows if somebody won't read your story? I look forward to the day that I'm gone. Maybe I'll actually be a hero. When you die, it seems like people forget all the bad stuff in our life and they... They, they make you something that you're not. 
Who knows? The point is this. Our reward exists in heaven. It's bigger than our lifetime. And so that's what we strive for. Our mission is our king's glory so that we might receive the honor of being one in whom the king delights to honor. Mordecai didn't receive his reward. He didn't receive his reward when he saved the king. He received his award years later. And not because he asked for it, not because that's what he was working for. It just happened to be because God is the one in control. In fact, to add insult to injury, those six years ago when Mordecai saved the king because he made known a plan to kill him, Haman was the one who received honor. Look at Esther chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, talking about Mordecai saving the king, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. It's so easy for us to look at the wickedness of this world and try to be conformed by it because we see what, what, what an earthly person, someone who's not seeking God, who is not practicing Christian discernment, sees as blessing. We seek recognition in the wrong places. Our reward is God. We must keep our eye on that. Psalm 37 speaks to this. Let me just read the first six verses. Psalm 37, never envy the wicked. Soon they fade away like grass and disappear. Trust in the Lord instead. Be kind and good to others. Then you will live safely here in the land and prosper, feeding in safety. Be delighted with the Lord. Then he will give you all your heart's desires. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him to help you do it, and he will. Your innocence will be clear to everyone. He will vindicate you with a blazing light of justice shining down as from the noonday sun. You've got to watch the order here, loved ones. Delight in the Lord and He will give you all the desires of His heart. That does not mean that He will give you the desires that you have on your heart in this moment right now. He will give you the desires of your heart once you delight in Him. When you delight in His glory, when you are seeking Him, when He is your reward, then He will give you that because when you seek that God is glorified in all that you do, this is the truth. God is glorified because He is God. It's already accomplished. If that would be your goal, if that would be your objective, it's already done. The promise is already fulfilled. He's simply waiting for you to align your heart to His will. He's seeking for you to respond to the burden that He has laid on your heart, that you would seek His provision rather than what you can provide for Him. And finally... We have the certainty of God's will. We see God at work in us. We see Him becoming our reward. And finally, we see the certainty of God's reward as we turn to verse 13. Haman takes these robes. He takes them. He dresses Mordecai. How humiliating for a man consumed by pride in himself. He 
dresses him, he honors him, and he's the one to lead him through the city square, declaring, thus it shall be for the one whom the king delights to honor. Mordecai doesn't relish in his reward given to him by man, but he returns to the place that God had called him to be at the king's gate. Haman leaves. A turn of events. Now Haman is the one mourning with his head covered. The only difference between this and and what takes place in in chapter 3. I'm sorry, in chapter 4. The only difference in this is that Haman is not seeking God. He still seeks himself. He goes to his friends and he complains all the more. He goes to his friends and his wife Zeresh and tells them everything that has happened. Oh, and we see the wisdom. The wisdom in their response. If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. The encouragement that we find in the book of Esther is that the circumstances around us, because, well, actually, I I say sometimes you can disagree with me. I really need you to agree with me on this. This world is not of God. The discouragement that we have in looking at a world that is not ran by God's principles, when we look at a world that is filled with wickedness to the brim, that our own blindness to sin prevents us from seeing. Is that if God is for us, who can be against us? It might seem futile to be an advocate. It might seem futile to seem like Rachel said. She's afraid of of being embarrassed or, or people making fun of her. They have good cause to make fun of us. Back away from your Christian faith just for a moment and imagine some of the things that we believe and the way that we talk about them. I would make fun of us too. Had it not been for a burden laid in my heart. And if you're here this morning, you're hearing my words. I know that that burden's there. The Bible's filled with common sense that convicts us, that reveals to us our own need for God, that reveals to us that there is no saving ourselves from a sinful estate because there are thoughts that run through our mind that we cannot control, because there is sin ingrained into us because we have inherited it from our fathers, that every person born since Adam has inherited the sin of their father. And that the only redemption comes from the one man, the one God-man, that never inherited such sin because he was not born of an earthly father, but was born of a divine God, given to a virgin. So that his righteousness might be the justification that we need. Not justification for what we might want to do, but the justification that sets us right before God even though we don't deserve it. Because the penalty, the wages of our sin have been paid by His goodness, by His glory. And if our hearts would only be aligned to His, if we would seek His glory above accolades and recommendations, then we would also, by God's good will and providence, see His glory amongst us. We would see it rise up and we could even, could I perhaps even suggest to you this morning that if Christians would rise up the way that the Bible tells us to, that we might even see this world redeemed. 
We might have a moment in our history where people are coming to God like the Great Awakening. It's happened before. Open up a history book. Look at what happens when the church is alive. Look at what happens when the world is given rest from their weariness. This world is tired. They are, they are tired. They are weary. They feel lost. They have no hope because they do not know how they can fix a system that is continually broken. They have every right and every logic. They are sound in their argument when they say that there is nothing to be done. Because in man, there is nothing to be done to fix this broken world. Only in Christ. That is why our hope does not lie in in governments. It does not lie in success. It does not lie in wisdom. You're not going to get smart enough. I won't get smart enough. God's laid a burden on my heart, and so I'm a nerd, and you're not. And so he sent me to seminary so I could get educated and get smart and learn the proper way to use who and whom. Is that going to save us? Do you need a smarter pastor in order for the church to be healthy? Some of you wish I was less smart. Bless God. Bless your little hearts. Listen, if you believe that God works in individuals, then would you also believe this? Believe that God works in me the same way that He works in you. Believe that in my unique calling, He has given you a unique calling. Believe that in each individual strand of hair that lies on your head was counted by our Father before the days that you were formed in your mother's womb, and He put you here for a purpose. He put you in this time for a purpose. And He is calling out to you, if you will come to me, if you will align your heart with mine, I will be glorified. You may never see the rewards, you may never see the response, but God will be glorified because he is worthy of glory. There is certainty in God's will. I asked you last week if you wanted to be a hero of the faith. Let me ask you now what holds you back. Is it that you fear that you will not be received well? Is it that you are envying the wicked because you see their many rewards, their position, their power, their prosperity? Are you willing to give it all up for God's glory? Are you willing to be called a fool in the public square because you preach a gospel that the world has turned away from? Are you willing to sacrifice your strongholds for success for His kingdom? Do you really seek His glory? Are you still trying to save yourself? Yeah, I believe the gospel, but while I'm here on earth, I'm going to let my bank account get fat. I'm going to drive the nicest car I can. I'm going to make sure my credit score hits the 900s. Would you give it all up if he asked you to? You know what stood out to me when I watched The Sound of Freedom last night? Tim Ballard was 10 months away from receiving his pension all the earthly security he could ever need when he quit his job to pursue saving the innocent. If God asked you to do that, would you? Or would you tell God to wait 10 months? What are you holding on to? Why are you holding on to it? Do you not believe that God is the one that provides for you? If you truly believe that the conviction that is set in your heart is of God, then He is the one that will provide for it despite all earthly wisdom. 
I say many times that the church is not a business. I've said it many times and I'll continue to say it because we do things that don't make sense. We do things that the world would say, that's foolish. And I don't say that simply as a preacher that's zealous or anything like that. I say that as someone that has come from the business world and looks at the things that the church does and directs such decisions and hear myself in the back of my mind saying, what foolishness. You believe by standing up in a closed room that people will be saved. Don't you think you'd be better off writing a book where you could convince them of all of these things? That's the way God works in me. Can I not draft a good enough argument to convince somebody that Jesus Christ was a real man, really died, really rose from the grave? I could and it wouldn't work. Because that's not the way God told me to do it. Because he, he gave me actually an instruction manual for the way that I'm to live my life and the way that I'm supposed to glorify Him. And so I do what the world says is foolish and I stand in a pulpit and I preach the Word of God and I try to keep my opinions out of it and I try to please my King. I give up my earthly comforts if He asks me to. I'd give up my life if he asked me to. The book of 1 John, I think it's 3.16. Yeah, 1 John 3.16 tells us that there is no greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life for another. This is exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. And he commands each of us to do it for one another. Consider this, I think that's an indictment on pastors that want to sit in a comfortable office and they want to study all day long and, and they don't want to... Listen, a shepherd smells like his sheep. I'm changed by you as much as I pray that you are changed by me. I'm willing to lay down my life for you. If the day comes that the governments should finally achieve so much power that they tell us not to preach Christ, they tell us to water down the truth by saying that we are to affirm what people believe their gender, gender identity should be, I will continue to preach Christ and Him crucified. I will continue to preach the truth that God created man and woman in His image, that He is glorified in their creation because He is a glorious Creator. Did you know that in California, your children will be taken away from you if you refuse to affirm their gender identity? I will continue to preach the truth. I will be persecuted by this world's courts. I do not care because I look forward to the day that I should receive my reward in heaven. Do you? You want to be a hero of the faith. Believe what the Bible says. It's really as simple as that. Father, I ask you to move in our hearts this morning. Help us to ask ourselves what burden has been laid on us, what role you have called us to play. Help us not to be somebody else, not to try and achieve something the way that we have seen others achieve it. Not to be a hero, Lord, but simply to be a faithful servant to you, to seek the lowly places, to know you. Father, I ask that if there is anyone within earshot of us this morning. That your spirit would work in their heart to give them faith. Confidence to stand and to say, 
that they have been called for a purpose and to seek you and their pursuit of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with